All right. Good evening. Welcome to our Catholic education classes. Tonight we're looking at the Catechism. But before we do, let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Come Holy Spirit, help us to know the truth, to love the truth, to live it out every day. Guide us in our path to heaven with you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. As always, we uh, welcome any questions or comments. And uh, we're starting off tonight on paragraph uh, 268. on paragraph 268. The Almighty. Of all the divine attributes, only God's omnipotence is named in the creed. To confess this power has great bearing on our lives. We believe that His might is universal. For God who created everything also rules everything and can do everything. God's power is loving, for He is our Father, and mysterious, for only faith can discern it when it is made perfect in weakness. Yeah, sometimes when we're suffering, we wonder where God's power is, like you're sick. And you think, well, why isn't God's power healing me? But, uh, there's more to life than just physical life. And sometimes uh, an accident could be the very best thing for us spiritually. You know? So God in His power could have avoided that accident, that crash, that sickness. But um, He allows it for our spiritual well-being. Paragraph 269. The Holy Scriptures repeatedly confess the universal power of God. He is called the Mighty One of Jacob, the Lord of Hosts, the Strong and Mighty One. If God is Almighty in heaven and on earth, it is because He made them. Nothing is impossible with God, who disposes His works according to His will. And we have to be careful. Uh, when you say, God can do anything, he can do anything that He wills to do. God cannot do what He cannot will. Since God is truth, He cannot lie. Since God is goodness, He cannot do evil. God's almighty power is perfect. And it has to be in accordance with all of His attributes which are all perfect. So his justice, his mercy, his kindness, his goodness, his honesty, his truthfulness, they're perfect in every way. So God can do whatever God wills to do. He cannot do what he cannot will. For example, as I said, like he, he couldn't tell a lie or he couldn't be evil. He also cannot contradict himself. You know, you get the age-old question that students tend to ask teachers, can God make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? You know, what they're, what they're doing is they are proposing a contradiction. God cannot give existence to a contradiction in itself. The question I asked, I don't know if you remember it in class, the question I asked, can God make a square circle? The answer is no. A square by definition is one thing. A circle by definition is another thing. Now what about, what about miracles that defy... Hang on, hang on. <laughs> it is a contradiction in itself. A square is a square, a circle is a circle. You cannot, God cannot give existence to a contradiction in itself. Now... Can God 
defy the laws of nature. Of course, he made heaven and earth, as it just said. He created heaven and earth, and the so-called laws of nature are not laws at all. They're simply things that we observe. The law of gravity. We observe, you drop it, things fall. But it's not inviolable. You go to outer space, suddenly it's not dropping anymore. Okay? And so, we observe things that are so-called natural. Can God go beyond the natural? Absolutely. He is supernatural. And so, he could heal me. He could transport me. You know, uh, Padre Pio was known to be in two places at one time. I don't know if I ever told you this story, John, but this story is great. We just got to take a little break here for a great story. Um, we have, I have a friend over in Fort Laramie. And her name is Rose, and her uncle was in World War II. She's about our age, I'd say. She's about my age. And her uncle was in World War II. And uh, he was flying co-pilot on uh, like a B-52 bomber. And he was stationed, um, or at the time, he was somewhere not too far from Rome, Italy. And they took off on a bombing mission. And they're flying, I don't know, 20, 30,000 feet in the air. They're way up in the air. And suddenly, right in front of their windshield of the airplane is standing a Franciscan friar. <laughs> I mean, he's like 10 feet in front of him. And he's going like this. He's making, you know, he's making motions like, don't continue on your mission. the pilot, and Rose's uncle, the co-pilot, they talk to each other like, you see this? <laughs> yep, I'm seeing it too. Like, what is this? I don't know. He acts like he doesn't want us to keep going, but the pilot was in charge, and I, I don't know if he was in charge of a several planes or just one plane or whatever, but he said, we got we got to carry out our mission. He said, I, I, I don't care what this is. We're, we're going to carry out our mission. They get to the bomb site and it's clouded over. They can't see a thing. So according to their mission, they had a secondary target. And, uh, or how'd it go? They tried to drop the, no, it wasn't cloudy. They got to their bomb site. He's going to drop the bombs, but it wouldn't work. I mean, nothing worked. Yeah. And they got to thinking, maybe we should go to our secondary site. So they go to secondary site. They open up the bomb doors. They drop the bombs. It all works perfectly. There was something about that first site that I guess the good Lord and Padre Pio didn't want the bomb because... A couple weeks later, when he was off duty, he went to the monastery where Padre Pio was, and he saw Padre Pio, and he didn't recognize him. He said, that's the guy that was standing in the sky, telling us not to bomb that place. He had never met him before, but he met him a few weeks later at the monastery. He saw him and recognized him. So, you're going beyond the laws of nature. Padre Pio as a human being, was physically in that monastery. He did not leave that building. And yet, something that looked exactly like him was up in the sky. You know, theologically they call it bilocation. Now typically we can't do that according to the laws of matter. You cannot be in two places at the same time. But God is not bound by the laws of matter. He created matter. And he can uh, abrogate those laws if he wants. And so that's what it means when we say in a creed that he is almighty. And his power is universal. 
It is over everything in heaven, everything on earth, everything in the universe. He made everything in the universe. There is no limit. You can't say, well, oh, that's something, you know, that the power of God could not accomplish. You know, no, he can accomplish whatever he wills to accomplish. And in fact, he brought all things into existence by an act of his will. Let there be light, there's light. Let there be, you know, the sky, there's the sky. And so on and so forth. So all God has to do is will it, and it is. Let me ask you one question. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of saints have, like, the power to, you know, have, do miracles or whatever. You know, yeah. uh, it seems like for a lot of them it was pretty, uh, you know, every time they went to heal somebody, it happened. I mean, it seems. I mean, it seems like for some of them, it seems to happen. You know, quite often. I mean, is that just somebody being really in tune with the will of God, or is that more of? I think there's a couple things in play here. First of all, you have to take. You know, you have to take into consideration people are writing history and they're writing holy history. So yeah. they're going to point out these highlights. And when we read the book, it looks like oh, he was always doing those things. But probably 98% of the time, he was not doing those things. Those were the highlights. Okay? Secondly, some saints had the power of healing much greater than others. For example, St. Peter, as it says in the Acts of the Apostles, they would lay the, street, lay the sick on cots in the street, and if he walked by and his shadow touched them, they were all cured. That's healing very close to the power of Jesus. I mean, Jesus healed them all. It says that over and over and over. And Peter's coming very close to doing the same thing. Um, but yet, there, there, is, there seems to be some sort of discernment. Peter raises a woman from the dead, okay? But he doesn't raise all the people from the dead that he sees, and Jesus was the same way. He didn't raise all the people from the dead. He raised here and there. He raised a person from the dead. And so there, oh, and that brings me to another thought that I, it was just amazing. I was reading St. Alphonsus Liguri last Saturday morning, and I always wondered, how could Jesus let Joseph die? If you had the power to keep me alive, I wish, I, I, I hope, I would think you would do it. You would say, oh, Dad, I love you. I'm not going to let, you know, yeah. I would have kept my dad alive. I would have said, Dad, I'm going to keep you in good health until I die, then you can die later. Because <laughs> what a sadness to see your dad die. I mean, it's a sadness. But Jesus did. He let Joseph die. At least we certainly think so. He's not mentioned in the Gospels. We think Joseph had passed away before Jesus began his public ministry. And if that's the case, you know, Alphonsus Liguri was talking about Mary's entrance into heaven. Maybe uh, that Jesus was there to welcome the Virgin Mary because he had already resurrected. Mary lived on some years afterward. And then she died and was assumed up into heaven. So it was surely a wonderful day when you kind of think that in human terms, Jesus goes out to meet his mother and to welcome her into heaven. That'd be pretty cool with all the angels and saints. But Joseph also gets that opportunity to work. And I'm thinking maybe that's why Jesus let Joseph die first, so that Joseph could be there to welcome his spouse into heaven. Just a thought. Who knows? Who knows? But Jesus was all-powerful. God is all-powerful. He could have kept Joseph alive. He didn't have to let him die. And he did. And I've thought about that oftentimes. When you ask why something happens, don't go down that road. I just think that's not a road we should go down very often at all. Because 
why should God heal me or keep me alive when he when Jesus didn't even keep his own father alive Saint Joseph he let him die sometimes people will say Lord why did you let my loved one die Jesus could say I let my loved one die you know I just I just don't think that's a good road to go down I think just accept God's will you know whatever it is if it means somebody's gonna die hey then they go to be with the Lord and accept it I think acceptance is the way to go questioning God I don't think it's the way to go anyway we go back to paragraph 269 uh, and that's a great thing about not being on a schedule we can take detours when we want <laughs> um, nothing is impossible with God who disposes his works according to his will he is the Lord of the universe whose order he established and which remains wholly subject to him and at his disposal he is master of history governing hearts and events in keeping with his will always keeping with his will it is always in your power to show great strength, and who can withstand the strength of your arm? Paragraph 270. God is the Father Almighty, whose fatherhood and power shed light on one another. God reveals his fatherly omnipotence by the way he takes care of our needs, by the filial adoption that he gives us. Quote, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Finally, by his infinite mercy, for he displays his power at its height by freely forgiving sins. Yes. We don't think of the, the power of God like uh, the power of Thor or something like that. You know, it's not just brute power. It's a fatherly power that love of a father for a child, that's the power of God in our life. God's almighty power is in no way arbitrary. In God, power, this is from St. Thomas Aquinas, in God, power, essence, will, intellect, wisdom, and justice are all identical. Nothing, therefore, can be in God's power which could not be in his just will or his wise intellect. That's what I was saying a moment ago. God can do all that he wills to do. He cannot do what he cannot will. Paragraph 272, faith in God the Father Almighty can be put to the test by the experience of evil and suffering. God can sometimes seem to be absent and incapable of stopping evil. Yes, you know, one quickly thinks of like the Holocaust or, you know, warfare. It just seems like God is absent. And like, why does he allow this to go on? But in the most mysterious way, God the Father has revealed his almighty power in the voluntary humiliation and resurrection of his Son, by which he conquered evil. Christ crucified is thus, quote from St. Paul, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. It is in Christ's resurrection and exaltation that the Father has shown forth the immeasurable greatness of his power in us who believe. Only faith can embrace the mysterious ways of God's almighty power. This faith glories in its weakness, in its weaknesses, 
in order to draw to itself Christ's power. You know, St. Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I say I can't do it, I look back in my life just last night at CCD class. I gave my testimony. The first night of CCD, I always give my testimony. And I was incapable of breaking out of my sinful habits. You know, the drunkenness, all the sinful habits of my teenage years and early 20s. I was incapable. It was impossible for me to break out. And it was only when I surrendered and admitted, Lord, I can't stop. You know, I, I can't do this. Would you do this for me? Then the power of God became evident in my life. That power was always there. But because he made me a free agent, he made me a free uh, a creature with a free will God was not going to step into my life and force me to change my sinful ways it was only when I acknowledged my weakness as St. Paul says when I am weak then I am strong when I acknowledge my inability then God can say okay I can take care of that oh you know Raising you kids, it's always the same. You got a little bitty child and they're trying to tie their shoe. And they're just learning how to tie their shoe. And I, I've, I've seen so many of you kids, you know, let me do it. I want to do it myself. You know, and maybe you're in a hurry to go to church or something. You want to get the shoe tied. And they, let, here, let me help you. And the child literally screams at you and slaps your hand away, I want to do it myself. <laughs> and of course, they haven't learned how to do it yet, and so they try, and a child's patience is very short-lived. And about 60 seconds later, I've actually seen children just crumble, just, just fall into a heap on the floor, crying. And at that point, you know, they've given up, you know, okay, honey, let me help you. All right, dad, you know, and then you tie their shoe and everything's happy and you go on their way. Man, that is what St. Paul said when he said, when I am weak, then I am strong. When you admit your inability, your weakness, then God can step in. And he can fix the problem. He can tie your shoe. Back to paragraph 273. The Virgin Mary is the supreme model of this faith. For she believed that, quote, nothing will be impossible with God. And was able to magnify the Lord, quote, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. It certainly was beyond the laws of nature what God did for her, making her pregnant with the child Jesus without any sexual activity. Paragraph 274. Nothing is more apt to confirm our faith and hope than holding it fixed in our minds that nothing is impossible with God. Once our reason has grasped the idea of God's almighty power, it will easily and without any hesitation admit everything that the creed will afterwards propose for us to believe. Even if they be great and marvelous things, far above the ordinary laws of nature. Yeah, later in the creed we're going to say, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Well... If God can do anything, if God can do all things, if God is all-powerful over everything on heaven and earth, over our natural bodies, well, no problem. He can do it like nothing. He can resurrect from the dead. All right, paragraph 279, the Creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Holy Scripture begins with these solemn words. 
The profession of faith takes them up when it confesses that God the Father Almighty is, quote, creator of heaven and earth in the Apostles' Creed, of all that is seen and unseen in the Nicene Creed. We shall speak first of the creator, then of creation, and finally of the fall into sin from which Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to raise us up again. Paragraph 280. Creation is the foundation of all God's saving plans, the beginning of the history of salvation that culminates in Christ. Conversely, the mystery of Christ casts conclusive light on the mystery of creation and reveals the end for which in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. From the beginning, God envisioned the glory of the new creation in Christ. Yeah, absolutely. God knows the end at the beginning. And everything from the first moment of creation has been to lead us to salvation. And that's another reason why we should never question anything. We don't see reality the way God does. It's as if life is a parade. And we're a child on the other side of a wooden fence. And I run and I find a knot hole and I look through it. And I can see a little bit of the parade. I see the horses go by, I see the float go by, I see the band go by, and I just see a little bit, one thing after the other in succession. And I don't know what's coming because the wooden fence blocks me. I have no idea what's coming. And I may have forgotten what already went by. <laughs> but God is like someone up in the observatory. He sees the beginning. He's up in the helicopter. He sees the beginning of the parade. He sees the end of the parade. He sees the entire middle of the parade. So... For us, sometimes we don't know, well, why was that? And then later we find out, oh, that's why. And all of life is that way. That's why it's just better to trust, just to trust God. And as Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today's got enough worries of its own. Just trust in God. He knows what's coming. He, he knows. He sees the whole parade at the same time. Time, for us, is a succession of events. But time doesn't exist for God. Is God is living in the everlasting now. And so there's no worry. Okay, back to paragraph uh, 281. And so the readings of the Easter Vigil, the celebration of the new creation in Christ, begin with the creation account. Likewise, in the Byzantine liturgy, the account of creation always constitutes the first reading at the vigils of the great feast of the Lord. According to ancient witnesses, the instruction of catechumens for baptism follow the same itinerary. Paragraph 282. Catechesis on creation is of major importance. It concerns the very foundations of human and Christian life, for it makes explicit the response of the Christian faith to the basic question that men of all times have asked themselves. Where do we come from? Where are we going? What is our origin? What is our end? Where does everything that exists come from and where is it going? The two questions, the first about the origin and the second about the end, are inseparable. They are decisive for the meaning and orientation of our life and actions. It is true. This is why history is important. You, you need to know the beginning to, in order to understand the end. 
And uh, one day, I think Jesus was kind of uh, put out with the, the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus said, I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going, and you know neither. He said, you don't know where you came from, you don't know where you're going. He said, I know where I came from and where I'm going. And I'm telling you, one, when you live your life in Christ, that it just brings that kind of clarity and meaning to your life. I know where I came from. I came from God and I am going to God. And when people don't know God, they don't know the Lord, they, 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 they really don't know what their life is about. Which is so sad. Not to know what your life is about. That's, why am I here? <laughs> that is a very basic question. But when you know the Lord, you know the answer. I'm here because God wanted me here. You didn't cause yourself to exist. And certainly your parents didn't want you. <laughs> I said that to a student today in class. I got right in his face and I said, your parents didn't want you. He kind of grabbed his chest. He said, Spank, that really hurt me. <laughs> I said, well, I know for certain they didn't want you. I said, they wanted a baby. But they had no idea that baby would be you. Who knew that you would be you? Only God. So God Almighty wanted you to come into the world at this place and in this time and in this situation. So there is a great meaning in your life because God has brought you. I said, think of that. God Almighty, who created everything that exists, wants you to be here right now. And if he didn't want you to be here right now, you wouldn't be here right now. And the reason he wants you to be here is because he loves you. Because he is a loving father. It is just transformative when you let that get into your heart. Anybody who believes that would never uh, feel like their life is meaningless or, or purposeless or, or, or they would never have these feelings of self-loathing that so many people today have. It's like, I hate my life. How can you do that? When you know that God Almighty loves you and wants you to be here in this very place, at this very time, in this very situation. The two questions, the first about the origin and the second about the end, are inseparable. They are decisive for the meaning and orientation of our life and actions. That's the point I was just trying to make. You know? It's, they orient our life. When you know where you came from and you know where you're going, your life has a specific orientation and meaning. The questions about the origins of the world and of man has been the object of many scientific studies which have splendidly enriched our knowledge of the age and dimensions of the cosmos, the development of life forms, and the appearance of man. These discoveries invite us to even greater admiration for the greatness of the Creator, prompting us to give Him thanks for all His works, and for the understanding and wisdom he gives to scholars and researchers. With Solomon, they can say, It is he who gave me unerring knowledge of what exists, to know the structure of the world and the activity of the elements, 
for wisdom, the fashioner of all things, taught me. It is true, I find it true, uh, that many people, when they look into outer space, when they see pictures of the stars and the galaxies and stuff, it's like, oh wow, the immensity of space and the glory of God. And that's true, that, that's cool. But for me, personally, it's when you look through an electron microscope and you see the complexity and the information that is in DNA, which is absolutely mind-boggling to me, how you can put all of this information into this extremely, extremely tiny space. And it all works. The inner workings of a cell boggle my mind. Outer space, yeah, that boggles my mind too, but it's inner space that really gets to me. And, and so we can say I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, it's just really cool. Um, and science has discovered a lot of things. And will continue. Science is simply the observation of reality, of what is. And we're just looking a little deeper all the time. And now we can see things that we couldn't see a century ago. And so we, we just keep observing the complexity and the marvelousness and the wonderfulness of God's creation. Which is a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. The great, paragraph 284, the great interest accorded to these studies is strongly stimulated by a question of another order, which goes beyond the proper domain of the natural sciences. It is not only a question of knowing when and how the universe arose physically, or when man appeared, but rather of discovering the meaning of such an origin. Is the universe governed by chance, blind fate, anonymous necessity, or by a transcendent, intelligent, and good being called God? And if the world does come from God's wisdom and goodness, why is there evil? Where does it come from? Who is responsible for it? Is there any liberation from it? I was answering some of these very questions today in my, uh, in my freshman uh, scripture class because we just started Genesis, you know, we're starting origins. And we said, and it says that God looked at everything and, and said it was good. And so I asked these 14 year old freshmen, I said, wow, everything God made was good. <laughs> Where did evil come from? <laughs> they weren't too bad. They weren't too bad. Uh, it didn't take very long, and some of them started to, started to get, well, the, the devil did it. I said, well, where'd the devil come from? Did God make him bad? And the child looked pretty perplexed. He went, oh. And then another kid piped in right away and said, he's a fallen angel. He was good when he started. Yeah. You know, so it was, it was great. It's so much fun. Since the beginning of, since the beginning, the Christian faith has been challenged by responses to the questions of origins that differ from its own. Ancient religions and cultures produce many myths concerning origins. Some philosophers have said that everything is God, that the world is God, or that the development of the world is the development of God, pantheism. Others have said that the world is a necessary emanation arising from God and returning to Him. Still others have affirmed the existence of two eternal principles, good and evil, light and darkness, locked in permanent conflict. That would be dualism, Manichaeanism. 
According to some of these conceptions, the world, at least the physical world, is evil, the product of a fall, and is thus to be rejected or left behind. That would be Gnosticism. Some admit that the world was made by God, but as by a watchmaker who, once he has made a watch, abandons it, abandons it to itself. That's deism, the divine watchmaker. He winds up the universe and then he sets it on the shelf and lets it run by itself and he doesn't interact with it. That, that was deism, and in fact, quite a few of the founding fathers in American history were deists, like Ben Franklin was a deist. Uh, there were quite a few who uh, embraced that view of God. Finally, others reject any transcendent origin for the world, but see it as merely the interplay of matter that has always existed. Materialism. And I'm pretty sure that Aristotle and Plato, I mean, the ancient Greek philosophers, they felt that the universe always existed. There was no beginning to the universe. It always was. So matter always was. And we simply have an interplay with the atoms as they mix about throughout eternity. All these attempts bear witness to the permanence and universality of the questions of origins. This inquiry is distinctly human. Right. The rabbit sitting in my front yard is not pondering the origins of the universe. Human intelligence is surely already capable of finding a response to the question of origins. The existence of God, the Creator, can be known with certainty through His works, by the light of human reason, even if this knowledge is often obscured and disfigured by error. This is why faith comes to confirm and enlighten reason in the correct understanding of this truth. By faith we understand that the world was created by the Word of God, so that what it so that what is seen was made out of things which do not appear. So, the church teaches that with our human intelligence, with our reason, we can come to know God. What about God? The existence of God. It's as simple as there's a creation, there must be a creator. There's design, there must be a designer. There's movement of the universe, there must be movement. Thomas Aquinas gave a number of proofs for the existence of God. Let's just say movement. We observe that everything in the universe is moving. The earth is spinning, the solar system is spinning, the Milky Way is spinning, uh, galaxies are moving, uh, we observe, you know, the, the universe expanding. Okay, what did you learn in science class? An object at rest stays at rest unless acted upon by an outside force, right? I forget what the name of that one was, but I know I got that in junior high science somewhere. And uh, maybe it's the law of inertia, I forget. But the thing is, that's what we observe. An object at rest stays unless it's acted upon by a, a, an outside force. Well, here the object is the universe. And everything in the universe is moving. So it has to be acted upon by an outside force. We would call that outside force God. And we use the word transcendent. When you see that word transcendent, it means outside the limits of. So outside the limits of created matter, outside of the universe, is God who is moving it. He's the unmoved mover. He's the uncaused causer. He's the undesigned designer. God is the beginning. Now look at uh, the argument from contingency for the existence of God. 
how do I know God exists? Because I exist. Because you exist. God has to exist. How so? Well, let's take an example. If there were a book that I wanted to read, but I had to borrow because I didn't have it. And I asked you, do you have, no, I gave it to Bob. I asked Bob, no, I gave it to Tom. I asked Tom, no, I gave it to Bill. And I keep trying to track down this book. If I'm ever going to read the book, what has to be true? You have to find out who has it. Okay. You're close. Let's step one more basic step back. What has to be true? Divide what you said in half. The book has to exist. Yes. If the book doesn't exist, no one can have it, right? Yeah. You said you have to find out who has it. Okay. First of all, the book has to exist. And someone has to have it. Who doesn't have to borrow it from someone else? Because if he has to borrow it from someone else, he doesn't have it. So if I'm ever going to get the book, the book has to exist and someone has to have it. Right? Mm -hmm. Existence is like that book. It has to be, and someone has to have it. I did not cause myself to exist. I came from my parents, who came from their parents, who came from their parents. And no matter how far you want to go with that, eventually you have to take it back to someone who has existence and doesn't have to borrow it from someone else. You cannot just go infinitely back. There has to be a beginning because we do exist. So there had to be a beginning of existence. And that person has existence. They don't have to get it from someone else. They are existence. That's exactly what God told Moses at the burning bush. What's your name? I am I exist. I am existence. I am being. I am essence. He doesn't have to get it from anyone else. And there was never a time when he did not exist. So, the existence, you see, and we're just using our reasoning there. We're just using our intelligence. The universe is moving. There must be something to make it move. The universe exists. There must be something to cause it to exist. And so all we have to do is observe, and that's what St. Paul said in his letter to the Romans. He said, you look about, you see the creation, there must be a creator. He said, everybody knows that. I mean, we try to make this a little bit harder than what it is, you know. The truth about creation is so important for all of human life that God, in his tenderness, wanted to reveal to his people everything that is salutary to know about the subject. Beyond the natural knowledge that every man can have of the Creator, God progressively revealed to Israel the mystery of creation. He who chose the patriarchs, who brought Israel out of Egypt, who by choosing Israel created and formed it, this same God reveals himself as the one to whom belong all the peoples of the earth and the whole earth itself. He is the one who alone made heaven and earth. Thus the revelation of creation is inseparable from the revelation and forging of the covenant of the one God with his people. Creation is revealed as the first step toward this covenant, the first and universal witness to God's all-powerful love. And so the truth of creation is also expressed with growing vigor in the message of the prophets. 
the prayer of the Psalms and the liturgy, and in the wisdom sayings of the chosen people. Among all the scriptural texts about creation, the first three chapters of Genesis occupy a unique place. From a literary standpoint, these texts may have had diverse sources. The inspired authors have placed them at the beginning of Scripture to express in their solemn language the truths of creation, its origin and its end in God, its order and goodness, the vocation of man, and finally the drama of sin and the hope of salvation. Read in the light of Christ, within the unity of sacred scripture, and in the living tradition of the church, these texts remain the principal source for catechesis on the mysteries of the beginning, creation, fall, and the promise of salvation. It, it is true, it is the first three chapters of Genesis where almost everything is taught right there. I mean, it is amazing, all the things that the Catechism just mentioned. This summer, I read, I had the privilege of reading a book called Genesis According to the Saints. I forget who wrote the book. Basically, he was an editor. What he did was, he took each line of the first three chapters of Genesis. He took each line, and then for that line, he took, um, oh, maybe uh, 15 or so uh, saints, doctors, and fathers of the church who wrote commentaries about that line. And so you read, what did Thomas Aquinas say about that line? What did St. Augustine say about that line? What did St. Lawrence of Brindisi say about that line? It was marvelous. It was just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book. Um, one line from St. Augustine, um, I thought reading the, whole, uh, reading the whole book was worth just capturing this one line. St. Augustine, and I can't quote it absolutely word for word, but I can tell you basically what he said. He said, whereas everything in these first three chapters of Genesis has a symbolic meaning. He said, but that does not mean that these things did not happen in material reality. In other words, he's saying, these things all happen as they say it happened. This is one of the most, uh, this is one of the most dangerous things that has happened in the last century or two. People have tried to take the symbolism of the first three chapters of Genesis and make it all that there is. They try to make it into a parable or a myth that's, that just conveys a certain religious truth. And, and I have heard school teachers, grade school teachers, I have kids come to school, and they say, oh, my teacher told me Adam and Eve never existed. You know, that's just a story. That never, that never happened. That is not true at all. That's not what the Catholic Church teaches at all. The Catholic Church teaches very clearly that there was a first man and a first woman. They committed that first sin, the original sin. These things happen. And Hebrew scholars who have studied this immensely have said there is no doubt it's written in the form of a narrative. It's written in the form of someone telling the story of what actually happened. Now, it's true that everything that happened has a further spiritual sense that it points to something else. Just like Abraham and Isaac, you know. Abraham and Isaac, you know, Moses is writing the story and he tells us, you know, Abraham was told by God to offer his son and, and, and they go off and they find the hill and he puts the wood on his back and he takes him up the hill and he's going to offer him and the angel stops him. We all know the story, right? The story actually happened. 
But Moses had no idea when he's writing the story of what happened, how all of those details are going to point to Jesus Christ almost 2,000 years later. Isaac is an only child, an only son. Jesus is an only son. Isaac is born miraculously from a 90-year-old woman. Jesus is born miraculously from a virgin. Isaac is innocent. Jesus is innocent. Isaac is going to be sacrificed. Jesus is going to be sacrificed. Isaac carries the wood that he's going to be sacrificed. Jesus carries the wood that he's going to be sacrificed on. Isaac carries it up a hill. Jesus carries it up a hill. And in fact, it's the same hill. They walked for three days and God pointed out to Abraham, that's the place. Because God knew that 2,000 years later, that would be the place where Jesus would suffer and die. Now, when you're reading Abraham and Isaac the story, and you say, oh, wow, look how that all points to something else. Does it mean that Abraham and Isaac's story never happened? Would someone say, oh, that's a myth. They never existed. Well, that's stupid. But they do that with Adam and Eve. Oh, they never existed. Those things never really happened. No, those things really happened. But they all have a spiritual meaning that go, be, that go far beyond the events themselves. Meanings that we see later, as it says. When you read this, um, how did they put it? When you read this, uh, where am I? Um, uh, I think I just turned the page. i got to go back. It says, read in the light of Christ. When you read everything in Genesis in the light of Jesus, we now know how the story is going to end, see? We can see the connections. Read in the light of Christ with the unity of sacred scripture and the living tradition of the church. Then we can see how it all fits together. And I am convinced that if you tell a child the first story of the Bible isn't, isn't true. You, for a small child, for example, they don't get all the nuances, okay? And so when you say, well, they never really lived and those things never really happened, but this is a story that teaches us something important. The little kid doesn't get it. What the little, I'm convinced what the little kid gets is, it's not true. And if the first story in the Bible isn't true, why would they believe any of the rest? I'm convinced that's a faith killer. Just in, 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 uh, in real life, when you teach you know, kids in the first, second, and third grade, when you go down that road and say that, you're, you're just destroying their faith. I think uh, creation is, and the catechism says it, I totally believe it. Creation catechesis is extremely important. We need to know that God is the creator. We need to know the beginnings of the human race. Because uh, if we let the secular society uh, have its way, they'll tell us, well, there is no God or everything is God and, and, and it, we're just a product of evolution with no soul and no free will and no external you know, code of morality. And I mean, everything goes away and you lose your faith. And that's why you talk to so many people who have been schooled in evolution, they totally lose their faith. And they admit it, you know, that, it, that those views of creation or decreation uh, have totally, you know, destroyed any faith in God that they might have. Um, Let's see, we still got quite a bit to go on creation, so we've been at it for an hour, so I think we'll, we'll stop here at paragraph 290.
we'll say a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Lord, thank you so much for creating us. You are the Almighty God, and you have brought us into being at this place and at this time. Thank you so much, Lord, for your love. Help us, Lord, to fulfill the purpose that you have for us in this life so that when we return to you, we can do so happily, having done your will on this earth. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs> really gets the camera.